0: The Whole Health Cure with Dr.
1: Sharon Burquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life.
0: Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, I'm beyond honored to have as my guest, Dr. Neil Barnard. His work has revolutionized care and influence policy. Many of you may know him from his New York Times bestselling books. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Your Body in Balance, addressing the link between food, hormones, and health. A bit of background for those who may not know Dr. Barnard, he's an adjunct professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Dr. Barnard has led numerous research studies investigating the effects of diet on diabetes, body weight, and chronic pain, including a groundbreaking study of dietary interventions in type 2 diabetes funded by the National Institutes of Health that paved the way for viewing type 2 diabetes as a potentially reversible condition for many patients. Dr. Barnard has authored more than 90 scientific publications and 20 books for medical and lay readers, and is the editor-in-chief of the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians, a textbook made available to all US medical students. As president of Physicians Committee, Dr. Barnard leads programs advocating for preventive medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. His research contributed to the acceptance of plant-based diets and the dietary guidelines for Americans. In 2015, he was named a fellow of the American College of Cardiology. In 2016, he founded the Barnard Medical Center in Washington, DC as a model for making nutrition a routine part of all medical care. Working with Medical Society of District of Columbia and the American Medical Association, Dr. Barnard has authored key resolutions, now part of AMA policy calling for a new focus on prevention and nutrition in federal policies and in medical practice. In 2018, he received the Medical Society of the District of Columbia's Distinguished Service Award. He has hosted four PBS special uh, programs on nutrition and health. Originally from Fargo, North Dakota, Dr. Barnard received his medical degree from George Washington University School of Medicine and completed his residency at the same institution. He practiced at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York before returning to Washington to found the Physicians Committee. And I also want to add on a personal note that I was delighted to be present to watch Dr. Barnard receive the 2016 ACLM Trailblazer Award so well-deserved for him to be recognized for all his contributions to our understanding on the role of diet in our health. Dr. Barnard, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, you know, before we jump in talk, to talk about your latest book, and I have to say I loved reading it, I want to ask just a few questions to kind of get to know the person behind the books, which, you know, we rarely get to, to get a sense of when we read your books and, and watch you in your PBS specials. I wanted to ask, you know, how you became so passionate about the power of food
1: I have to say that I, I think we've really underestimated what foods can do. And this was really true in my, in my own life. Um, I, as you mentioned, I grew up in North Dakota and um, we thought we, at the time we really thought food was pretty unimportant. Um, my dad was in the cattle business as a young man, just like everybody else in the family, but he, he did not like raising cattle. So he went to medical school and he became the diabetes expert for Fargo and for much of Eastern North Dakota. Um, So he spent all day in the clinic with people, with lots of people with type two diabetes and so forth. But I never once heard him say, when he would come in at, you know, come back home at six o'clock and set down his medical bag. I never heard him say that anybody with diabetes ever got better. You know, oh, you know, wow! I had five patients today who no longer have diabetes thanks to me. That that never happened, not even once. And the whole idea at that time was just. You would use medications and you would test and you would make diet changes that didn't really do very much. And, and the patients still had the disease. In fact, they still didn't do very well. And when I was in medical school myself at, at George Washington University, I mean, it's as good a medical school as there is in the universe. But I had the, exactly the same experience. People with heart disease kept having heart disease and people with high blood pressure just stayed on medications forever and diabetes not, never got better. Anyway, um, so forgive me for this long winded answer, but what happened was we started doing research studies, where we started to discover that if you if you make the right kinds of changes, particularly in what the patient is eating, you can make diabetes just go away. And I thought, good grief, um, food—you know—it's it, suddenly making food seem really, really powerful. And Dean Ornish, whose work you know. Um, showed that you could reverse heart disease we started seeing people who had so many other serious conditions that you could really have a huge impact so i i just wanted to scream it from the rooftop that let's use this rather than than let your spouse your parents your children just wallow in illness that's going to make them unhappy and uncomfortable maybe even shorten their life Um, let's put food to work so anyway that's what happened to me i thought i kind of was struck by lightning i guess you could say
0: Oh, what a great story! And and so, what led to starting um, the uh, physicians um, committee? I know you went. You finished residency, and what happened afterwards that led to um, starting it?
1: Right, I was in New York. I was working at St. Vincent's Hospital, and um, I was very active with with my practice. Anyway, I, I have to say, I I, I became a little Much as I love medical practice, I was a little bit discouraged that we weren't doing anything about a heart attack until it came into the emergency room door. Um, We we didn't do anything about breast cancer until it showed up on a mammogram. I thought, wait a minute, can we prevent these things? Can we take steps so that the mammogram stays negative forever? Can, Can we keep the patient from developing the heart attack? Can we predict these things and change them? The answer, of course, is yes, but that requires us actually practicing medicine in a little bit different way. So I started the Physicians Committee to bring prevention in, to bring nutrition in, to, to conduct research studies so that we could see what we can do, and also to change how research is done. Because when I was in medical school, we were all supposed to take a live dog and give the dog drugs and then kill him at the end of the, the, end of the laboratory just to show how norepinephrine affects the body or how propranolife uh, affects the body. And so... Um, I realized. Wait a minute. We need to focus on human beings. Really, you don't need to kill anybody. Um, animals or humans, and uh, we can we can do things ethically, and we can do things in a good way.
0: Wow. So that was back in 1985, and you know, even in the present day, working um, you know to try and promote prevention and wellness. You, know, I know how challenging it is right now in 2020. What was it like back in 1985?
1: I. Hate to say it, it was kind of the same mindset. Um, really, uh, prevention was not a big thing then. No, no, I should say you know, we have we have certainly made progress. Um, back then, when you, you talk about doctors, you know, how many doctors are following say, a plant based diet? It was relatively few. How many were advocating? It's still relatively few. Today, it's ex- it's much more common, but it's it's still not where we need to be. And so, so that's why we have launched a number of programs like nutrition CME where doctors can go online and get continuing medical education that's talking about nutrition rather than a new drug. And so we do have these tools, but, um, but, but nonetheless, we've, we've seen tremendous progress.
0: Right, and you know, you've um, you know, certainly been instrumental in a lot of government policies, and in, you know, as you're saying, in making sure that there are a lot of ethical practices in the way we do research. Um, But, you know, dietary science and and guidelines are fraught with a lot of controversy and opposition, and I'm sure you've felt your share of controversy and opposition. How do you handle that?
1: Well, um, I think the thing to do is to understand it. Um, If you're hearing one day a headline saying that cholesterol is bad, and the next day a headline saying cholesterol is good, it's not that scientists can't make up their minds. It's because one side is scientists and the other side is industry. Um, cholesterol that you eat, say, in eggs, does raise the amount of cholesterol in your blood. If you eat animal fat, it does raise the amount of cholesterol in your blood. But the egg industry will fund studies showing, well, maybe it really doesn't. And, And so they both get the same kind of headlines and that confuses people. So if we understand that what we're really dealing with is not so much the limitations of science as much as it is the confusing aspects of people who are trying to sell things to you, like eggs or... Steak or cheese or whatever—that that's really the, the source of the confusion.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great perspective because, um, and I'm sure you know, you certainly have to defend and, and make a really coherent, evidence-based, you know, argument for everything that you're promoting. Okay. Um, so that's you know, a very effective strategy. Um, so, yes, I want to jump into tackling hormones, um, you know, a topic of your latest book. So how did you discover that foods could help hormone-related problems?
1: Uh, completely by accident. I got a call one day at my desk. And it was a young woman who said, my cramps are just killing me. You know, many women have menstrual cramps, but for perhaps one in 10 they are just off the scale. And that was her situation. She had a business trip. She had to go on, but she said, I can't even get out of bed. What do I do? So I said, well, I can give you some painkillers and that'll get you through today and tomorrow. But how do we stop this from coming back next month and the month after that and the month after that and the month after that. And I started to remember there were research studies done with that were trying not to deal with, with, uh, menstrual pain, but they were actually trying to deal with breast cancer. At the time, we knew that breast cancer was fueled by estrogens, the female sex hormones. If you got too much estrogen in your blood, it's gonna fuel cancer cell growth. And so researchers discovered that you could tame estrogen, you could reduce the amount of estrogen in a woman's blood through really th- maybe three different ways. One is to get away from animal products and fatty foods. For whatever reason, when you reduce fat, estrogen levels will fall nicely the other thing is to increase high fiber foods that's vegetables fruits whole grains and beans and the third is to avoid cheese and other dairy products because they actually have estrogens in them that come from cows so i thought all right well she's got menstrual pain what is menstrual pain it's the lining of the uterus thickens up every month in anticipation of pregnancy and that's because the uterus is the most optimistic organ in the body. Every month it's convinced that, that we could get pregnant this month, so we could better get ready. So the uterus thickens up the lining. Um, but if there's too much estrogen in the blood, it thickens up too much. And that leads to pain, extra pain at the end uh, with menstrual flow. So to this young woman, I, I suggested just as a, an educated guess, I said, would you like to try a diet change for next month? No animal products at all, 100%, 100% vegan, um, and keep the oils really low too. So we were reducing fat, boosting fiber, avoiding dairy, and it was an absolute cure for her. She was fine, didn't have this again. So um, I then did a research study to confirm this with Georgetown University and a large group of women, and it worked great. And in in, in the course of that trial, not only was it really cool to see that menstrual pain got better, but we had one of the women in a study thought that she was infertile. In the course of the research study, she got pregnant, completely unexpectedly, uh, just after about, I think, six weeks of being on this vegan diet, and I, I ran into her later. She had three children, and so what I realized is, wait a minute, by changing our diet, we're changing estrogens, uh, ebbs and flows in a way that if we control it, we can deal with things like menstrual pain, endometriosis, infertility, and none of those will kill you, but, but breast cancer can kill you and we can control that too to a degree. And then you can do the analogous things for men. So anyway, I just got really excited that all of these things that we thought I just got to put up with it. I've got menstrual pain because I'm a woman and I, I, I just now have to take painkillers every single month. Maybe we can erase some of those diagnoses like infertility or dysmenorrhea by, by, by changing what we're, we're doing. So my goal with your body and balance is to give people the tools to try it in their own life.
0: Oh, that's an amazing connection um, that I think helps so many conditions. And I want to also clarify estrogen because you know, sometimes when people have fertility problems or under the um, you know, perception that their estrogen is too low, not too high. Um, same with, for example, menopause, which is one of the other problems you tackle. Can you explain kind of what balance looks like for estrogen?
1: Yes, and, and, and I should say that not everything is really known about this because I think, I think you're putting your finger on, on the most important issue that it's not necessarily a question of being too low or too hot, or just too low or just too high. You really want to be in the middle, um, every, you want to be in balance, and that's true for every hormone. Um, I've I've been talking about estrogens, the female sex hormones, but take insulin, which is the hormone made in the pancreas that goes through the bloodstream to the cells of the body to let sugar go inside the cell. Insulin, if you don't have any insulin, if you're really low in insulin, you can die. Um, If you have too much insulin, you can die. Um, You need to be in the middle. Same with thyroid hormone. Your thyroid gland at the base of your neck makes thyroid hormone to, to control your energy um, and other functions. and Same story. You can die. It can be, it can kill you if you have too little or too much. So um, in all of these cases, you want to be in the right balance, and you get knocked out of balance into sort of a hormone haywire by eating animal products, uh, dairy products, meat, these kinds of things uh, disrupt our, our hormone function in many ways.
0: Right, and, and- when you talk about the animal products, you know, there are so many components in the animal products that influence hormones such as estrogen. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of avoiding cheese and dairy uh, and the recommendations that you're making?
1: Yeah. Um, dairy products are something that everyone sort of thinks of as a normal part of life, you know, the glass of milk when you were a kid. But if you stand back a little bit, and look at it the way mother nature would look at it, it's crazy to drink milk. Um, to get a glass of milk, what people may not know where it comes from, but um, what happens is that a, an underpaid farmhand, um, and some dairy, artificially inseminates a cow, which is not done in a very pleasant way, but she is impregnated, and then they wait for her to give birth, and once they give birth, they take away the, the baby calf, and either kill the calf if he's a male or, or isolate her if she's a female until she's old enough to be impregnated herself. And then we take the milk. And then we turn the milk into cheese and yogurt and all these things. And we act like it's somehow normal. But what nature had in mind was that a cow would only make milk for her baby and that's it. Um, now this raises all kinds of issues because there's cholesterol in it. There's saturated fat. In fact, it's the biggest source of saturated fat, bad fat, cholesterol-raising fat in the diet. But Remember I said that the cows are pregnant. Um, They're pregnant every year and they're milked when they're pregnant. And when they're pregnant, they're making estrogens that get into the pail of milk and they get into your cheese and your yogurt. And if you have a seven year old son or an eight year old daughter, every bite of cheese pizza they're eating has estrogens in it. It came from that cow. And you would never in a million years want to give hormones to your children in their breakfast or lunch or dinner, but that's exactly what we do when we feed them dairy products. So it's a good thing to get
0: away from. Right. And so do you think that nutrition should play a bigger role in approaching breast cancer and other hormone-related cancers?
1: With no question. Um, We have seen that nutrition affects the likelihood of developing breast cancer, and it also affects the likelihood of dying of it. And I think perhaps the Simplest example is with soy products. Um, in fact, a- actually, this has been a source of confusion. Um, w- the fact is that women who consume the most soy milk or tofu actually have about 30% less risk of developing breast cancer compared to other women. Um, the reason I emphasize that is uh, the internet myth is that it's, it's kind of the opposite, that soy products cause breast cancer. They actually don't, they they substantially reduce the risk, um, and also women who have had breast cancer in the past, they they had a diagnosis of it and they were treated, their likelihood of the cancer coming back is also greatly reduced if they include a fair amount of soy in their diet. And when I say soy, I just mean soy milk or tofu or soy yogurt or something like that. Um, What we think is going on uh, is that soy probably, well, it does, attach to estrogen receptors. And and that's why people first thought that soy would cause cancer. But we have more than one kind of estrogen receptor. You've got alpha receptors and beta receptors. and in, in the same way as on the floor of your car, you've got a gas pedal that makes it go and you've got a brake that makes it stop. Soy kind of hits the brake, I guess you could say. It, it uh, puts the brake on cancer. So that, that's just one example. But there, there are many, many others. And um, if you eat a diet that's really high in fiber and high in vegetables and fruits and avoids animal products, that's, a, that's, that's a, a prescription for the lowest risk of cancer that you can get, and by adding animal products, especially things like hot dogs and bacon and sausage, the processed meats, I mean, those are just invitations to cancer, I'm sorry to say, Uh, but dairy products as well.
0: and, And that's great, so it's really kind of like twofold. You need to remove the fat and add soy to get the maximum protection. And I want to jump into you know, diabetes, because you've done so much work around diabetes and in uh, with insulin. Can you talk about some of your research findings as it relates to diabetes?
1: Yes. Um, in 2003, the National Institutes of Health funded our research team to try to find a better diet for type 2 diabetes. And to, to cut to the chase, there's just a completely different way of thinking about it. And, for people who are a little unsure what these terms mean, diabetes means that there's too much sugar in your blood, that sugar is glucose, and it's, it's actually not a bad thing. Glucose is a good thing uh, because it, it powers your cells, but it's only good if it can get into the cell and act as an energy source And it's not good if it's just building up in the blood, causing mischief. So to get the glucose inside the cell, your body makes insulin, insulin is a hormone that goes through the bloodstream, and it arrives at the surface of the cell, and it acts just like a key that goes into a lock, and it lets the glucose inside. Um, but some people develop a condition where the key is not working. Insulin is attaching to the cell, but it just can't open up the cell to let the glucose inside. Well, well, we know why, why, why it doesn't. We know why insulin's not working. It's because of fat that's gotten into the cell. And it reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid, there was a kind of a mean practical joke that some neighbor kids would play where they would put gum in people's front door locks at night. And then the next day you come back, come back home or something. You put your key in your front door lock and it doesn't work because your lock's all gummed up. Um, Your cells get gummed up in the same way, not, not with chewing gum, but with fat. Um, And if your muscle cells or your liver cells are filled with fat from burgers or from chicken or fish, fat or, or fryer grease or any kind of fat, then the cell will not respond to insulin. Your blood sugar is going to build up. So our research team said, all right, we're going to bring in people with type two diabetes. We're going to take all the animal products out of their diet. There's no animal fat left. We're going to keep oils very low too. And we discovered that their insulin sensitivity starts to return. Their blood sugars that have been going up for years start to finally come back down. They're not limiting how much they're eating. They're eating till they're full until they're satisfied and the changes are pretty simple instead of meat chili it's bean chili or instead of Alfredo sauce on your pasta it's tomato sauce on your pasta whatever uh, very easy but we started to see something that my dear dad never ever saw which was diabetes going away and I will never forget the first patient I had whose diabetes was gone he'd had it for four or five years. And, he had, he had, and, and his family tree was filled with diabetes. But he got all, he stopped his medications and his, his, his blood sugars were smack in the normal range. He had a hemoglobin A1C of 5.3, which as you know, is, it's not even pre-diabetic, it's just healthy. And I was astounded because I was taught that that was not possible. <laughs> and, and of course, now we can laugh about it because we see it all the time. Um, if a person has diabetes, do a low-fat vegan diet. And within a matter of days, you will discover that your blood sugar starts improving. Let your doctor know you're doing it, uh, so your doctor can back you off on your medications in a sensible way. But it's it's just a gift. It's a great thing to do.
0: Oh, that really is a revolutionary finding. And as you said, you know now uh, we see more and more of it. That I, uh, you know, so uh, appreciative of your role in our understanding of diabetes. Um, And I love that analogy to when you're a kid and used to gum up the locks. (laughs) Um, Now, does that only apply for type 2 diabetes, or do you find the diet equally helpful for type 1 diabetes?
1: Um, The same diet works for type 1, but it works in a different way. Because with type 1 diabetes, the problem is that the insulin-producing cells are gone. In type 2 diabetes, your your pancreas is still making insulin, uh, although it's making perhaps less but the problem is that the cells are resistant to it. In type one, the cells in the pancreas that make insulin, those cells have been killed off. So you, you're, you're gonna still have to inject insulin, but uh, when a person with type one diabetes does a vegan diet, and, and when I say vegan, here, here, let me, the prescription is no animal products. So that leaves you with a lot of vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans, those four groups. Do take vitamin B12, that's important. But when a person does this and they keep the oils really low, um, there are two benefits. One is that you'll discover if you have type 1, the amount of insulin you need goes way down, might go down by a third, maybe even more. So you're not, you're not shooting up as much insulin. The other thing is that you've just done the best thing to protect your body from the complications. You know, people with type 1 diabetes, they, they for the most part, don't die of a blood sugar abnormality. They die of a heart attack or kidney failure. The blood vessels in our body have been destroyed by this disease process. So you don't want to have one scrap of cholesterol or animal fat in your diet. And with a low-fat vegan diet, you can live more or less a normal life.
0: Yeah, that's that's so impressive. Um, You know, you mentioned to take a B12 supplement. Um, What supplements do we need, if any, um, by making the dietary modifications.
1: Okay, well you do need B12, as I mentioned. You need it for healthy nerves and healthy blood. Um, and frankly, that's good advice for everybody. Um, it's essential on a vegan diet, but it's frankly, so many people are low in B12. Everyone ought to supplement. Um, that's the only one that you absolutely need in my view. However, let me also mention vitamin D. It, vitamin D comes from sunlight on your skin and if human beings had had the good judgment to remain in equatorial Africa where our species began, we would have gotten all the vitamin D that nature ever wanted for us. But we had the bad judgment to move to New Jersey um, and to North Dakota and all kinds of places that don't have so much sun, and so, particularly in the wintertime, and so we get um, vitamin D deficient. Uh, if that is you, then I would take a vitamin D supplement and a typical dose that most doctors would recommend is 2,000 international units. Um, that's really about it. There are other supplements a person can occasionally use, but for the most part, they're really not needed. And you'll get plenty of good nutrition from the foods that you're eating.
0: Great, and let's switch over to men's health. Um, so. Um, you know we've talked about some female related conditions how about erectile dysfunction um, what's the role of nutrition there
1: oh my goodness thanks yeah I've got to tell you the same scenario plays out in every single clinic in America Hank goes into the doc and he says doc I can't raise the flag and the, <laughs> the doctor knows what he's <laughs> talking about he's, he's got he's, men have all these euphemisms you know um, my nature you know whatever Anyway, the, um, so the doctor says, I, I understand you want a Viagra prescription, right? And, the, and Hank says, Yeah, doc, give me some Viagra. So the doctor writes out a prescription, and the patient takes the prescription and runs out and says, Thank you, I'm going to the pharmacy now. The doctor at that point drops his pen and races out the door and he catches the patient before he gets down the elevator. He says, Stop, we are not finished. You've got bigger problems. And he sits the patient down, and the doctor looks the patient in the eye and says, the reason that you have erectile dysfunction, it's not that you've got performance anxiety. It's not that you're just getting older. It's none of that stuff. The reason that you have erectile dysfunction is because your sexual function depends on blood flow. A man's private parts, it's sort of a hydraulic system, if I can put it that way. it's, It's dependent on adequate blood supply. If you don't have good blood flow to the man's private parts, nothing happens. And the doctor says, if you are having erectile dysfunction, that's a sign that your blood flow is reduced. And Hank says, what do you mean it's reduced? And the doctor says, you've got atherosclerosis. I've got what? You have little growths, almost like blisters forming in your arteries. They're atherosclerotic plaques. And if you have them in the arteries to your private parts, that means you're not going to get an erection anymore. But, but it also means that you almost certainly have the same process in the arteries to your heart and the carotid arteries to your brain, meaning you're a, you're a candidate for a heart attack or stroke in the next three to five years. So before you leave the clinic, I want you to sit down with our dietitian because Viagra isn't going to undo any of this. Um, we need to save your life. And the beauty is the patient now is given a low-fat vegan diet to open up his arteries again, and that ends up eventually curing his erectile dysfunction that he came in with in, in a great many cases. So you've you really got to talk to the patient about what caused it, because otherwise the erectile dysfunction is just a sign that he's a very sick man.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's a great point that you're not only helping erectile function, but so much of health and, you know, risk of heart attacks and strokes um, and how closely they're all tied together through circulation. And, um, you know, mood is something that, you know, I think we all see a lot in, in our practices, you know, the role of anxiety, depression um, plays in you know, the lives of our patients. What can people do using nutrition to help their mood? I think there are a couple of things. Um, One
1: is your gut is connected to your brain. By that I mean inside your digestive tract are trillions of bacteria. And those bacteria make compounds that get into the bloodstream, and they can make you feel crummy or they can make you feel good, depending on which ones they are. Um, Your gut makes neurohormones that affect how you feel. What is surprising is that what's in your gut, um, the the, the foods that you eat will control the the species of bacteria that predominate. And if you're eating a lot of animal products, then unhealthy bacteria flourish and you are set up to have um, depression as a result of that. Also, these animal products tend to be inflammatory and that also aggravates brain function. So years ago, we did a research study with GEICO, the, the car insurance company. Uh, Where we brought in people who worked there, but in the company cafeteria, we brought in vegan food And we found that diabetes got better people lost weight, but anxiety reduced and depression reduced and also we measured job absenteeism that went down, too and what we thought think is going on is just Bringing in healthy foods changes the gut bacteria within about two weeks time um, And the depression starts to lift now a big caveat there are other contributors to depression, and depression can be dangerous. I mean, suicide is a real thing, so don't cancel your doctor's appointment if you've got one. Um, don't only change your diet. You but 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 you are going to eat, so eat the healthy things that are good for the brain. While you're at it, lace up your sneakers. Exercise is good for your mood too. Ideally, in a nice sunny spot so that you can get sunshine. Uh, and when when researchers have tested what I'm gonna call sort of a lifestyle approach, which is very heavy on exercise and so forth, it really rivals what antidepressant medications can do.
0: Right, so, you know, it's just amazing what an adjunct food can be. Um, Like you said, even if it can't entirely cure conditions like depression, how much it can just make a difference for most people. Um, Dr. Barnard, you know, I want to thank you for all these wonderful explanations and for making the connection so clear between how hormones and and food um, interplay and and influence our life. Um, Before we end, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't had a chance to talk about?
1: Maybe just how to begin a healthy diet for a person who's interested but a little nervous. Um, We break it into two steps, and the first step is you take about a week. During this week, um, just explore healthy foods. Take seven days and just think about if, let's say I did do a vegan diet, what would I actually eat? And make a list. So for breakfast, maybe I'd have oatmeal with cinnamon and raisins. Go, ahead, go to the store, pick it up, see if you like it. Um, uh, if I have cornflakes with uh, milk every day, well now maybe I'll test almond milk. I never tasted it. I'm going to go to the store and try. Um, uh, every day I have a submarine sandwich for lunch and maybe I'll try the, the veggie sandwich and see what, what, if it's good. Anyway, you take a week and just try out options that don't have animal products in them. And after a week, you'll find them. So then the next step, once you've taken a week to figure out what foods you like that are, that are free of animal products, now step two is take three weeks and just eat those foods. For three weeks, you're going to be a complete vegan. You're going to not have any animal products at all, Be strict with yourself, which is now easy because it's only three weeks in because you already picked out the food. Um, At the end of three weeks, you'll discover that you are physically healthier. You're losing weight and your blood sugar is better and your your mood is better and your digestion is better. But you also discover that your attitudes about food have changed. Um, The things you thought you couldn't live without, you're quite glad to leave behind. And the new things that you're discovering are really new friends. So um, take a week. Check out the possibilities, then take three weeks, and give it a good test drive, and it'll change your life.
0: And, you know, to your point, it's incredible how quickly a dietary change can um, turn everything around in terms of hormones and mood and quality of life. Dr. Garner, thank you so much. You know, I want to thank you not only for your time today, but for all the work you've done over the past decades in increasing awareness, knowledge, both for, you know, people as well as for clinicians uh, and, you know, how you've moved forward our understanding of prevention. So I want to thank you. You're an inspiration to so many people, um, and I, I hope you keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing.
1: Well, thank you, Sharon. We're not done yet. (laughs)
0: wonderful thank you so much you take care
1: you too thanks so much Uh
0: the whole health cure
1: is brought to you by emory lifestyle medicine and wellness for more information about wellness assessments
0: classes and other resources please visit our website emoryhealthcare.org livewell this material is copyrighted by emory university